The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for medical or mental health advice. Individuals are advised to seek independent medical advice, counseling, and or therapy from a healthcare professional with respect to any medical condition, mental health issue, or health inquiry, including matters discussed on this podcast. This episode discusses abuse, which may be triggering to some people. This episode also contains a description of a homicide. Listener discretion is advised. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent the opinions of Red Table Talk Productions, iHeartMedia, or their employees. And my adoptive father sang to me, do you see what he's doing here? And I was like, well, what is that? And he's like, this is called manipulation. He's manipulating you to make you feel sorry for him. But he murdered your mother, but he's trying to make you feel good. And of course it worked because I am an empathetic person. And I'm like, oh, my dad can't ever have that again. Not realizing that he made that choice to do all this. And that's what he wants anyways. This is the second of a two-part episode featuring the stories of Tara Newell, and in this episode, with Collier Landry. Tara is a survivor of watching her mother survive a toxic relationship, and then Tara having to act in self-defense, which resulted in the death of John Meehan of the Dirty John fame. Collier's story is different, yet similar. Collier Landry's mother was murdered by his father when he was 10 years old. 
Collier has shared this story in a documentary entitled Murder in Mansfield, and he and Tara have joined forces with the new podcast, Survivor Squad, where they share the stories of the survivors of crimes instead of focusing on the perpetrators. Collier's mother's murder was not the end of his relationship with his father. Instead, it was the beginning of a process of discovery that made clear who his father was, and more importantly, a lifelong journey of healing that both Collier and Tara are paying forward. In this episode, we will hear Collier's story. We just heard Tara's story in part one of this podcast. And for those of you who have not listened and you're picking up here, please check out Tara's story because it really sets up sort of the parallel story of Tara and Collier here. Now, Collier, though, we're going to dive into your story, okay, which I didn't know as much about. I have been much more acquainted with Tara's story. I have talked with her mom before her mom's been on this podcast. I talked with her mom even years ago. Your story was very new to me, and so I've spent the last few weeks watched your film, Murder in Mansfield. People check it out because it's really quite a a remarkable journey to watch you go through. Collier also has an amazing TED Talk. So where I would like to begin with you, Collier, is tell us the story of what happened between your mother and your father, and just lay that entire story out because you are truly the, the a brilliant storyteller. I'll start by saying that I grew up with what I thought was a normal childhood. I had a mom, I had a dad, and I grew up the first part of my life in Virginia, outside a naval base in Dahlgren, Virginia. And uh, we moved to a small town in Ohio called Mansfield, Ohio, when I was five years old. My father was a doctor, my mother was a stay-at-home mother, but she did his books. And I just kind of thought that, yeah, I mean, there were issues in the home, obviously. My father had a proclivity towards violence, anger, rage. You know, he was apoplectic at times. And But that didn't really start to set in until we moved to Mansfield. But the majority of my time was spent with my mother. I was like her little sidekick. And I didn't really think that was abnormal. I realized, and looking back at it, the temperature in the household started to raise a little bit as I was getting older. So my mother had filed for divorce. There was a lot of this back and forth with my father would leave me little notes under my pillow. Oh, I love you. Oh, it'll be okay. All these things. And I start to really see how bad my father is. I always grew up not liking my father in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. because he was violent towards us. His temper, like I said, he was apoplectic. I remember one time I dropped an egg on the floor. We were making eggs for breakfast on a Saturday morning and the egg dropped on the floor and he threatened to kill me in front of my mother. Like just his rage was in control. And I grew up with a lot of fear in that. And that's something that Tara and I have discussed, mm-hmm. this growing up with this fight yes. or flight sort of, and how your trauma triggers, she's like, your trauma started happening way before your mother was murdered, mm-hmm. right? And I was like, oh, wow, that's like yeah. wild, right? So June of 1989, we're getting into fall, winter, and the divorce is not going well. It's now getting to the point where my father is coming home at times. He's not living with us at all. Mm-hmm. But he comes home and we're hiding from him upstairs so we don't have to deal with him. Then he leaves and then we can go downstairs again. It's very uncomfortable in the house. I would spend time with my father occasionally. My father would say, how's that bitch your mother doing? And my mother would say mm-hmm. the same thing about my father. This is in November of 1989. She mm-hmm. says to me, call you. I would never leave you. You know that, right? I'm like, of course, mommy. If anything ever happens to me, I want you to know 
that your father had me killed or she has done that. something to me. So yeah. she said that to you in as many words, and that was November yes. 1989. Correct. How did you feel? So you're a, a 10, 11? I'm 11 years old. You're 11 years old. Yep. And your mom says that to you. How did you feel? I, I, I mean, it's it, that's a terrifying thing to hear. And it's a terrifying thing to put on an, yeah. on an 11-year-old child. But obviously, this was her teeing up something. When I think about what Collier is saying here, remember, he's a child, but it's like a red flag come to life. Many survivors of emotional abuse live not only in the rumination of what is happening in the relationship, but also of what could go wrong. It can feel like this running inner narrative. Her sharing that with Collier was a lot to put on a relatively young child, but it's a haunting reminder that survivors in these relationships, in even these horrifying circumstances, do instinctually have a sense of what is happening, but often just don't know what to do. I think I even said something to her, like, I would never let it happen to you, mommy. And she started talking about, like, my father having mafia connections and things of that nature and ways to get rid of her. And then we just sort of tabled it, and, but I was very concerned, obviously. And then it's Christmas time, and my grandmother, my father's mother, who was extremely close to my mother, she was all that I had left as far as uh, grandparents. And so she was supposed to come for Christmas. She couldn't come for Christmas. So on December 30th, 1989, she arrives the day before New Year's Eve with my father. And it is ironic because... My mother, who I share a very sardonic sense of humor with, said to her best friend, Shelley Bowden, at the time, he just came here with his mother, so he can't kill me tonight. And obviously, as my mother would say, famous last words. So I kissed my mother goodnight on December 30th, 1989. I woke up to what I believe was the sound of a scream, and then I heard two loud thuds, and I was terrified. And I heard this muttering of a man's voice, which I recognized as my father's. And I was laying in my bed. I saw the feet land in my doorway and stop. And I'm just thinking to myself, whatever you do, don't look up. Because all my instinct was like to get up and see what's going on. I'm like, don't get up. Don't look up. The footsteps left. I don't know how. I found a way to go back to sleep. The next morning when I woke up, I ran straight to my mother's bedroom. I started rummaging through the sheets and I'm rummaging and I'm looking for blood. I go downstairs and my father had just taken a shower and he's sitting on the couch watching the news. And I say to him, where is my mother? He doesn't say anything. I raise my voice a little bit more. I say, where is my mother? Because at this point, like, I know what's going on. Something happened. I'm pretty sure that he's done something to her and I'm pretty sure that he's killed her at this point. And my father says to me, well, Collier, mommy took a little vacation. And at that moment, I knew that I was starting a race. And it was going to be him or me. So my father goes into this whole thing of, we're not going to call the police. We're not going to call the FBI. And when he said, we're not going to call the FBI, I'm thinking to myself, you just escalated this. Like, we live in Mansfield, <laughs> Ohio. Like, wow. I, and that was like red flag number one. One of the things that I had done is I had, in preparation for what my mother had told me, I took all of her 
friends' phone numbers, and I wrote them down on a piece of paper, and I folded that piece of paper up, and I put it inside this Santa Claus Garfield that I had inside the hat. So he said, we're not going to call the police. We're not going to do this. And I said, okay. So <laughs> I'm like, well, I won't call the police, but I'll call someone and tell them to call the police. <laughs> so I call my mother's friends and I tell them exactly what happened. And I say, my dad told me I can't call the police. Please call the police. And then I'm waiting. <laughs> and two uniform officers show up at the house. And those officers just do a routine check. Now, mind you, my grandmother is very upset that the police are there, yelling at me, your father said not to call the police. I'm like, I didn't call the police, Grammy. I don't know why they're here. So they do a routine walkthrough and take them upstairs to my mother's bedroom. They're like looking around. And I pull one of the police aside because one of them's talking to my grandmother and I say, I don't trust my father as far as I could throw him because that's what my mother always used to say. I don't trust your father as far as I could throw him. So they leave. I call my mother's friends and I said, you know, what, what's going on? And they're like, we filed the missing persons report. I'm like, she's not missing. This isn't like, oh, she just went somewhere. She's dead. She is either physically incapacitated somewhere or she's dead. Like my mom would never leave me, right? So the missing persons report caught the eye of a, of a detective named Lieutenant David Messmore at the mm -hmm. Mansfield Police Department. So he arrives at the house and <laughs> my grandmother is like screaming at him, yelling at me, like not letting him in. Our, my son's a doctor. He's going to get to He's like, oh, just let me, you know, let me just talk to you for just a little bit. I just want to ask a couple questions about Mrs. Boyle. When my grandmother walked away from me at that moment, mm -hmm. I told Lieutenant Messmore, I said, my mother is dead. Something has happened to her. My mother would never leave me. Give me your card. <laughs> mm -hmm. My grandmother comes back. She says, my son is ordering you to leave or ordering you to leave the house. He goes, okay, okay, no problem. The next morning I get picked up because I'm starting school again. I go into the principal's office. <laughs> I say, I want you to call this guy at the Mansfield Police Department and get him here. So Dave Messmore comes down and then I proceed because school was my safe place, yeah, right? Yeah. My father is not around. I'm not yeah. with my grandmother yeah. and I can talk. And I lay out everything to Dave Massmore. Mm -hmm. I just bombard him with all of this information where he's just like, what the, who mm -hmm. is this kid? And I tell him, I said, I'm going to go home tonight while my grandmother's dealing with my sister downstairs. I'm going to run upstairs. I'm going to pull the bookshelves out of the wall and look in the crawl space for my mother's body. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to look for her purse that would be missing because she would only leave with this one specific purse and only I would know that. And all, all this stuff. And I think he's just like this kid. Mm -hmm. And what proceeded to happen over the next 25 days is I would come, I would come every day to school and I wouldn't be going to school. I oh, would literally wow. be like, get Dave Messmer, let's call him on the phone and I would be giving him clues. Around January 21st, 22nd, 1990, my father says to me, he says, Collier, I have a medical conference down in Florida. So he goes, I think it would be great if we took a father and son trip down to Florida. And he starts, you know, sort of selling me on this idea because, you know, your mother's been gone and I just really want us to bond and this and that. And I go to school the next day. I said, let's call Dave Messmore. I said, Dave, said I've been able to swim since I was four years old. I'm going to drown in the Gulf of Mexico. I'm not coming back from that trip. And Dave, realizing that potentially I am the only witness to a murder, yeah. <laughs> the sole witness to a murder, is like, we need to get this kid out of there. January 24th, 1990, Children's Services comes, knocks on the door. They you know, wake me in my bed. They pull me out. I say, you know, they like, pack a bag, you got 20 minutes. As I'm coming downstairs, the entire house is flooded with men in white lab coats, 
cops did the whole thing. They are, you got the scanners out, these machines, all this stuff. They are full on into it. They can't find my father. He's sort of on the run. <laughs> and then they say to me, call your Lieutenant Messmore, found your mother. Eternal pause. And she was dead. And the first words out of my mouth were that bastard. And you talked about relief earlier. We were talking yeah. about like with Tara and, and, mm -hmm. and myself and what I had said in the film. <laughs> there is an overwhelming feeling that happens in a scenario just like that. Mm. And it's such a juxtaposition because on one side, you are relieved that like you're not crazy. Yeah, yeah. That something mm -hmm. really happened. Yeah. On the other hand, I'm like, my entire life as I know it yeah. is over. Yeah. And the one person who is the most dear to me in that life, I will never see mm -hmm. in this physical plane again. So did you have hope in January that it's possible she was still alive until they found her body? No, but I had hope in that moment. Yeah, I understand. Because it was, Lieutenant Vesper found your mom. Beep, beep, beep. Yeah, yeah. You know, and just mm -hmm. when you hear that, and even though I knew what I heard, what happened, the behaviors, yeah. everything, me leading the charge of just, you know, this is what this is. It's so hard to explain, but just like you have that just modicum of just hope. I, I think it makes and all the sense just, in the world. It, it just evaporates. Yeah. And the thing is, is that there was a trial that was about to start happening. You know, I testified under all these circumstances and you talk about the loss, right? So, you know, I lost my mother, but I also lost my father. Yes, you did. And I lost my dog. I lost I lost my entire way of life. And then I'm in a situation which was not great in foster care. Foster care was not great for me. Mm -mm. But I had to sort of find whatever was in me to then go, okay, now you have to buck up and bootstrap and figure it out and go into that courtroom because, look, the prosecutor said to me, you don't need to testify. And I'm like, that's over my dead body. We've come this far. Mm -hmm. This man will not walk free, like over my dead body. And if, it, and if it happens, I am going to give my absolute all and tell the truth as I know it. It's just like what you said about Tara earlier, reciting these things that, that happened. And people were like, well, why did you say that? And mm -hmm. how did you do this? Because it's the truth. Yeah. And, in, yeah. and the truth is the easiest thing to remember. That's mm -hmm. why it's 30 years later, when I look back, I can look myself in the mirror and go, I did what was right. And here you are in a courtroom and your father is completely negating your literal existence and your grief and not even looking at you. No. There's no recognition by this man that that little boy just lost his mother, his beloved mother. None whatsoever. It was, it literally was like watching this man eradicate the very existences, the psychic existence of his son right in front of him. Yeah, it's just it's just like Tara's story with John locking mm -hmm. her in the car. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't exist to me. You don't exist. <laughs> because your testimony is powerful. However, at the end of the day, a jury is still going to need evidence. Yeah. And boy, did they get it in a home in Erie that belonged to him with her encased in concrete under his house with the shelving unit and the carpeting and all that stuff. Like, th that's beyond a smoking gun. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, it was my testimony and then my father's testimony because, again, we're talking about 
navigating narcissism, <laughs> which I think that I've discovered that my father is beyond that. Yeah. But my father will lament to me in the letters that he sent me from prison, because I have like 400 letters over the past like 30 years, about how he realized when he got to prison, oh, everybody was like, no, you shouldn't have testified, and you shouldn't have testified. Well, my father, you know, testified. But here's what it is. It's when we think of grandiosity, we think of the person who's walking around saying, look how fancy my car is. Look how great I am. Aren't I wonderful? This is what grandiosity also is, that I'm so smart. I am so clever. You put me up on that stand. I can convince anyone. I can convince a jury. Mm -hmm. It's grandiosity. And I think, again, we don't realize the many faces of grandiosity, but this idea that I'm the smartest person in the room, put me up on that stand, and that... He believes his own hype. It really is on an almost delusional level. Tara, as you're sitting here and you hear Collier's story, which I know you've heard before, but, you know, for listeners of this podcast to hear, what parts of Collier's story do you relate to? Well, I relate to his mom, Mm. Mm, to be honest. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been through these types of relationship, maybe not with a psychopath, but... I've definitely been with, like, a sociopath before. His and my mom, I feel, are very different, where I believe that, like, his mom was in it, and she wanted this life. And my mom did, too. She wanted this, like, great life and everything. But there's certain things that, like, my mom had many guys in her life. She's Mm -hmm. had many marriages where his mom was trying to make this one marriage work. And I have so many friends where their husbands cheat and their husbands live this lifestyle, but they want to stay in it because they feel that it's going to be the best security for the kid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I relate to that with it. I don't have any kids or anything, but I... I could have been his mom. I hear that. I hear that. And I think what to me also strikes me again about about Collier's stories is the era. It was, you know, in the 1980s, certainly, and prior to that was how disempowered your mother was. And I, I often think of your mom. One of the things that I view as very protective in her case was how robust her career was for such such a long time. Your mother retained, even though controlling men tried to control her money, yeah. she still had some level of financial autonomy because she had that career. And whereas Collier, your mom, got into that really risky position where the wife is working for the husband. And not only that, there's the full financial interdependence of him being the mm-hmm. full breadwinner and nobody taking these things seriously because it still sounds like the vast majority of the abuse your mother endured was psychological. 100%. And in 2022, we still have no way of addressing that and we've come That's such a long say. way. I, I wanted to say to you, what's, no. you, you say late 80s, what's changed? Not much. Not when it comes to this. <laughs> not, there's not no really authority. There's no authority to call. There's no, you call, if you call law enforcement saying, I'm being so psychologically abused, no matter how well-intentioned they are, they don't have anything they can do. They're going to say, call me call me when he beats you. Right. And, or call and, me when he does something violent. Or, and then maybe. Call me when he breaks the law. That's yeah. the problem. Emotional abuse is not against the law. And only now in California, September, I believe, of, it was 20, 2020 or 2021, that the coercive control laws came into place. Yeah, that's right. 2021. 2021, yeah. September, right? September 30th, 2021. And that was only in family law. 
It only yeah. applies there. So it can't be like, for example, it can't be beckoned in the workplace or in a in, in a non-marital, non-custodial, shared children custodial relationship. So the range of applicability is pretty mild. But even then, law enforcement can't prosecute that as a crime. It's a part of that family law statute that can be extended to decisions around custody. So it's a bit more subtle. So there's still nowhere for someone like your mom to go. Yeah. The only difference is things around community property and things like that may have put her in a better stead financially, but even still, he wasn't going to let her go. So I don't care if your mom's story took place in 1989 or 2022 with your father's personality being what your father's personality was. That was the end to this story. The time in history, I just only think is that she would yeah. have fewer options. Would have, There was no internet. There was no place to go and sure. listen to a podcast or a video of like, oh, I'm not alone in this. Maybe there's things I could do. But to your point, Tara— that your mom also believed in something else. She may have believed in family. So there's a lot going on. And I feel like his mom also kind of had this secure attachment in a sense. To where, Collier. To Collier, yeah. Because I feel that she was like, okay, how do I manage this relationship? Yeah. What do I do best for my child in yeah. this situation? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was always about Collier, always about, you know, building that relationship, that bond with him. And I feel like that's also why he has more of a secure attachment and mm-hmm. like his relationships and everything because he's able to have that nurture from his mom. Mm-hmm. But again, when my father violated, when he crossed the line in the sand... That was when she's like, you've crossed the Rubicon. Like, that's mm-hmm. that's it. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. no turning back. So yeah. she did take that stand because a lot of people will say, well, your mom, you know, I'll get, hey, oh, your mom was just stuck into it because he was a rich doctor and that's mm-hmm. why she was sticking around for the money. I'm like, no. No. She was sticking around for that. But when he finally crossed, what yeah. she said, that's when she said, enough. I don't care what the outcome is. Yeah. I'm not going to subject my son, my now daughter, my family to this anymore. Yep. Because now you're worthless to me in a way right. because right. you've shown that you have no parameters and no respect for our relationship. Right. And now you have no respect for your child. And in every toxic relationship, people have said to me, there is a line, and that line's different for everyone, right? For some people, it's physical violence. For some people, it's infidelity. For some people, it is, in your mom's case, it was involving children. When that line gets crossed, now they're going to take on a toxic person, and that rarely ends well. My session with Tara and Collier will continue after this break. So now the jury has entered a verdict. Mm-hmm. And they find your father? Guilty. He gets life in prison. I stay in the foster care system. And then, you know, no family is really there, obviously. But I did develop a relationship with the police officer and his family, David Messmore. And it became very close from them. And I asked them if they would consider adopting me. And they said, absolutely. And so I thought there was going to be a silver lining to all of this because after the trial, I was able to spend time with them and mm-hmm. it was a summer and ride bikes and just have some sense of normalcy mm-hmm. after all of this just insanity. And what happened is the judge who was in charge of awarding custody to whoever was going to take me, David Messmore had investigated him a few years earlier for corruption. And he said, there's no way. I'm, you Actually, you don't believe that I'm going to send you the guy that arrested your dad, right? (laughs) 
And I got very upset in the courtroom and stormed out and was very angry and just, and I, I was awarded. Now, look, I mean, there is a silver lining to this. I went with a wonderful family, okay. the Zigglers. But in that moment, it felt yeah. like just yet another blow and Absolutely. another trauma. So I guess my next question is, so now you've been, after a sort of circuitous process, you do end up with the Ziegler family, yes. and it was a, a safe, stable yes. space. So after that period of time, so now you're into adolescence, high school, were you— asked to visit your father was there any was there any request to do that or was that forced was. on you and were you given the option to say no I, I was, okay. both of those things. Okay. I did actually visit my father when he was in Warren Correctional Institution. My father would write me letters and I can remember when those letters would come to my adoptive family, the Zigglers, and they decided to open them to read them first. Oh, okay. You know, to sort of screen them. Mm. And I think that's fair. I send him letters that are getting screened by sure. some prison guard because they wanted to be protective of me because I stayed in the same town where all this happened. Wow. And then I remember my adoptive father sitting down with me and I read the letter, but I was sitting at the kitchen table with my, my parents. There was this thing that my father was writing about really craving a filet of fish from McDonald's and how he would give anything to be able to have a filet of fish and how lucky I am to be able to have a filet of fish, you know, and my adoptive father saying to me, do you see what he's doing here? And I was like, well, what is that? And he's like, this is called manipulation. He's manipulating you to make you feel sorry for him. But he murdered your mother, but he's trying to make you feel good. And of course it worked because I am an empathetic person. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my dad can't ever have that again. Not realizing that he made that choice to do all this. And that's what he wants anyways. So over the years, my relationship developed. Once I turned 18, I went and visited him. And I decided at a very early age that I was going to forgive him. Not forget, but forgive him. The example that Collier gives here of his father grieving over not ever getting to have a filet of fish sandwich again and how it played on Collier's empathy, saying, oh, how sad, my dad can't have that kind of sandwich again. That's an example of manipulation and the trauma bond that is a classical example of these toxic relationships. What was interesting was that Collier's adoptive family pointed this pattern out to him clearly when they read the letter. Most survivors don't have people in their midst helping them decode messages and make sense of the confusion and guilt that empathy and the trauma bond can cause in these relationships. So I was determined to not let this take me down. Mm -hmm. So on those terms, I had a relationship with him, and the relationship was very surface. I would go and see him. We'd talk about like basketball, sports, girls, college, like what it was very surface the weather, politics, whatever it is. There was no like feeling getting into, oh, why did you? I never asked him why. I just decided that I was going to table those questions for later on in my life. For whether that was good or bad, I don't know. I think it was a good thing. Mm -hmm. But it enabled me to cultivate a relationship with him hmm. on terms that I understood. Okay. However, I always was driven by the fact that I wanted to know why he did this because there was it right. made no sense to me. And that is ultimately what drove me 
to get out of a small town Ohio and I wanted to do something with this creatively to share my mother's story, mm -hmm. to share my story so it wouldn't be in vain. Mm -hmm. So it would be told and other people could learn from this experience because why go through all of this if you can't share it so others can learn right it's stunning to me that you did maintain a relationship with him that you would go to prison that you would visit him do you feel though this that a major driver for that was i need to find out this why that was your motivator 100 okay all right i just didn't know how it was going to unfold got it i also knew that I would need my father's cooperation if I ever wanted to do anything with my story. And if no. I ever wanted to do, okay. and he, because I I was like, I, I want that from him. Mm -hmm. Let's face it, that's a really hard thing to unload on someone. Mm -hmm. Tara can relate. I mean, being what, she, what she's gone through to yeah. unload that in another relationship. <laughs> it is. Hey, by the way, right. I'm a really good person, but this <laughs> happened. And this is, you, you, you know what I mean? People look at you sideways like, you know, and I always faced a lot of skepticism with like, well, the parents of the girl I was dating, like, what's to say he doesn't do it to you? I always had to right. live down that stigma, right? And that stigma is, it's such a powerful and painful part of survivorship because yes. the survivors carry shame and they did no wrong. Yeah. So it's where people say, I feel shame for the family I come from. I feel shame for my parents' behavior. And it may not even be an articulation of shame, but it may even be that the world regards a person who brings these experiences with shame. And I think that that has been since time immemorial. There are many cultures and religions that would actually literally would put into the fringes families where there were histories of, for example, a person ending their own life or something Correct. like that. You see what I'm saying? So yeah. those biases, those stigmas have been there since forever. And I mm -hmm. and I still think that they're very, very present, no matter how much openness people claim to have. Now, I want to go to these letters, though, because you say hundreds of them <laughs> have come over the years, yeah. especially in the early letters, Collier. I am curious about how, how much or how often the letters were focused on checking in on how you were doing. <laughs> okay, I'm taking that as a never. Again, folks, you got to watch A Murder in Mansfield for no other reason that some of the more, some of those letters, I paused. I had to pause. They were so vile, Collier. The things he was saying to you were so horrific. After all that had happened to you, I was like, you know, I was like, I need to take a walk. I need to do something else. And I would pause because it was so painful to think that from prison that he would put these things on paper. And send them to you. And in, again, particularly another profound scene in the film was he was rejecting your letters. You sent him a letter yeah. and it came back to you with the note rejected on the envelope. You were his, his only contact now to the outside world and he was rejecting you. How long did your visits continue? So I understand the letters kept coming. You went to the prison to make the film. Was there ever a break or did you continue to regularly go to the prison in Ohio and see him? So in the scene in the film, when he walks up and leaves the room, yeah. that's the last time I've seen my father. And that was how long ago? That was six years ago. Now. So six years ago is the last time you saw him. Correct. Up to that point, six years ago, were you seeing I would him? See with him some... I would see him whenever I would go home to Ohio. I would see him every time as I got. So if I had, you know, wow. even when I was in college, like I could see him twice a month. So I would go twice a month because I was just trying to 
feel out like how I was going to do this and how this was going to play out in my right. life. And also like I am a son who is trying to grasp at some sort of, whether I'm grasping at straws or not, some sense of decorum of normalcy. You know what I mean? Sure. And what does that look like, right? And just trying to even, you know, even be even introspective to myself. Like, am I crazy for feeling this way? Because, of course, when you grow up being gaslighted and manipulated, mm -hmm. you feel guilty. Right. Because, right. you know, so mm -hmm. I had to go through all of those range mm -hmm. of emotions, which it's very easy to say, well, I'm going to be indignant about this and I'm going to be, mm -hmm. I'm going to stand firm on my ground. But also, it's not human to think that. You know, a psychopath or sociopath could do that, but not a normal person that has yeah. empathy and understanding mm -hmm. and compassion. So you normally reflect it back on you. I think, I feel like you reflect that back on yourself and go, yeah. am I doing, did I do the right thing? So that was part of this journey in getting to know him. One of the biggest fears that people who have toxic parents have is, I'm afraid I'm going to end up being like them. Maybe there is the belief that this is genetic or falls back onto the adage that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It's interesting because the people who recognize the harms of their own parents' behavior and who commit to not being like that aren't the ones who really need to worry because there's an awareness that their parents' behavior was problematic. But this fear that this legacy of emotional abuse is ultimately their inevitable destiny is a fear that often plagues survivors of these situations. So did you feel like you got to know him? I do. You do? Yeah. And what did you learn? Well, after he left the room that day, I realized at that moment that I will, I am not and I never will be my father. Mm -mm. No. It was a massive sense of relief mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because you grow up, like, again, stigmas, mm -hmm. and you grow up being sort of attached, again, to this outcome of understanding why yeah. this has happened. And I talked with the therapist offline from the film. He said to me, he said, I think if he had admitted and said, hey, this is why I did this, blah, 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 and it was this big moment, you would probably have more questions. Sure. But because of this, you can see the person that he is. Or isn't. Or, or isn't. Or yes. So when you say, like you said, please say after the last contact you have him six years ago, he leaves the room, please say I'm not him. I understand that part of it. But you said I did learn who he is. Who is he? He's a sad shadow of a, of a human being. Mm -hmm. He's vapid. Mm -hmm. There's nothing there. Mm -hmm. Like it was, it was like talking to a wall, mm -hmm, uh -huh. like an inanimate object, like it's a shell of a mm -hmm. person. It's like his eyes were black. Mm-hmm. You're not talking to someone. You're talking to a vapor. <laughs> Very much so. And also... And, and hollow. Hollow. But again, that's it. That's the shape-shifting of these kinds of antagonistic personalities like psychopathy and narcissism. They're, they're shape-shifters. They are constantly figuring out like how they can sort of sneak through the lock and get what they need from any human being. Yes. And the thing that you asked earlier was in these letters, as you say, like, how are you? How is this? Mm -hmm. and that? Blah, blah, blah. Something that was that we were talking about with seeing my father in prison, how this whole scene was going to play out, as you had mentioned, the letter that I read to him, which is the letter that he sent back to me, which was when I wrote him when I was 13 years old and said, please come clean for not only yeah. yourself, but for me, everybody, so the whole family can move on and we can all begin to heal from this. I think it's very big of me. To that was at 13. Age 13. Yeah. But well, we were discussing the scene and like how it was going to play out. And I thought of that two days before 
we actually went to Ohio to film. And I said, look, guys, I said, I have this letter. I want you to read it. I haven't read it. Mm. I only knew about it because a friend of mine that I was working with on another project had read it and reminded me of the story. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to read it because I didn't want to taint it. I hadn't read it since I was 13 years old or when I sent it. So I said, Barbara, John, you guys read this and then you tell me what you think. Should I come in there and should I be, should I softball this or should I come in there and should I come out both barrels and just say, read the letter and just go right for the jugular and be like, now I need you to tell me why mm-hmm. you sent this back to me. And John said to me, this is literally right before my father comes in the room. I said, so guys, what do you want me to do? What do you think I should do? And John says to me, he says, he knows that you and I have been friends for almost a decade. Mm-hmm. I just spent you know, the last three hours with this man. I spent 45 minutes with him alone. He never... I think he asked maybe one thing about you. Mm. The rest was all what he's doing. This He had all these awards that he was showing me about yeah. all the stuff he's yeah. done in prison and all these merits that he's achieved and all these things. That's all it was about. It was never like, yeah. it was never like, tell me how my son is doing. How is he doing? Is he is he a good kid? Is he is he doing well? Does he is he telling me the truth about stuff? Like how is his love life? How is he connecting? Like all these things that you would want to know if you're a father that doesn't get to interact with your kid. He didn't ask. And they said, Stick it to him. This man doesn't care about you. Again, in the film, you see the kind of certain chronology through the letters. One thing that was stunning to me is not only how cruel they were, but when the tenor and the energy in the letters started to shift when he needed something from you, which was for you to write those letters to the parole board. I was thinking everything this man does is a calculation Calculation. and a manipulation. The complete lack of interest. And even how he would start trying to pump you up, son, I'm so proud of you and all the positivity nonsense. And right there, again, your story is far more cruel and violent than most we hear, but it is no different than almost any one story with this kind of parent, which is there is no genuine interest in what the child is about, whether they're a child or whether they're an adult child or an adolescent, it doesn't matter. No genuine interest, but you want to hear about me. However, when they need something, they have no problem fluffing up their own child. Oh, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud. Hey, can I borrow some money? It's that. And so... Yours, seeing it played through those letters was what was so profound. And we have one of these letters we here. Do. This is, to me, if you might be willing to maybe read part of this letter. Absolutely. And maybe we could even do some sort of breaking it down with regard to where we see the psychopathic, narcissistic stuff in how this letter is approached. It's a very long letter, so we'll only read a part of it. There's something in his approach that is so, it's so clinical, it's so procedural, it is self-serving, it is disengaged from you. It's almost like if you took all three, 400 of those letters and put them together, you'd have a masterclass on psychopathy. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to go ahead and have you read this. I want people to hear what one of these letters is like. Again, this is a letter, one of the many letters that Collier received from his father who is in prison. I'm just going to read the very intro here, but it starts off, Dear Son Collier, Well, as anticipated, I received your last letter last night and was very thrilled to hear from you and to receive your photos. You are a very handsome young man and photograph very well. I am proud of your composure. Your mother would be very proud of you. I agree on mommy's friends. They were never friends from the get-go. It seems to me that all they did was take and use your mother for their own purposes. It also seems that mommy, unfortunately, was duped by them. I am not at all surprised that the rest of mommy's acquaintances have vanished. Fairweather friends all. On my questions about the case, 
I understand your desire to, quote, forget things as they are painful, but I can assure you that they are just as painful, if not more, to me personally. (laughs) They are questions that must be asked and answered. I know the answers to some of them, as the investigation has turned up many interesting things. I just need to know if you are aware of them. This is the logic that I am utilizing with you. On the other hand, I am glad that you have happy memories. At least I was not that bad of a father to you, eh? (laughs) I know I was not a bad father, so do not worry about that. I did the right thing for you and mommy all the time, and everyone knows it all too well. Yes, I am in prison. I am not in prison for a crime I committed or had anything to do with. I am here because I allowed my attorneys to conduct a trial in the manner they did. I did not know about the law. It was a great big act for Mayor and Whitney and Henson. So Mayor would be the prosecutor. Whitney was his, was his defense attorney and James Henson was the judge. You must recall there is no evidence against me. As Tom Adgate tells me, the, quote, playing field was not level for my trial. All had their own individual motives for riding my back to a victory, and it all seems to have centered on political advancement and money. I am innocent of the crimes for which I am convicted. I killed no one. I plan nothing to cause either the disappearance or death of mommy. I don't even know if it is mommy. Doesn't it seem peculiar to you that I was never and had my medical experts were ever able to examine the evidence against me, the body? Doesn't it seem peculiar to you that our system of government and the laws that the defendant was not able to confront the evidence against him? This is the type of justice fostered in in the small minds of Mansfield. What you must do is prepare yourself for those who see you as a target. (laughs) You will have an inheritance. There will also be those who are waiting for you to get money, so they will try to get it from you. I personally would have liked you to have been raised under Uncle Charlie's roof, but that is the past now. Some of the anxieties you are experiencing might have been avoided or more easily answered. But the Zigglers are good people, and I have no compunctions about their care or love of you. I am thankful they have been so generous to you. All right. So let's just start breaking some of this down, shall we? Because damn. So let's just give people context. You were 16 years old. So you're an adolescent, which to me is still a kid. Yeah. Okay. You are not. That would have been horrible for a full-on adult to hear, but you were an adolescent, an adolescent who had actually just been through trauma, the likes of which most people could not comprehend. Okay. So he gets into it with its son Collier. Okay, which is already a strange way to, you know, like, it's like as though you're playing a role, all right, not Dear Collier. And never in any of the parts you showed me and even what I looked over, there's ever a how are you? Are you okay? Is everything okay? I am worried about you. There's no shred of empathy, no shred of concern. None of that is there. Then he goes into criticizing your mother's friends. Yeah. Okay, so that theme, the criticizing your mother's friends, it comes up later again with another thing he does, is a really good example of triangulation. It's almost an extension of what we were talking about in Tara's story of the sense of isolation. It's as though he's still trying to isolate your dead mother from her friends after all these years. The the mother's friends were still the enemy. So he's criticizing them. It's then that all of this is more painful to me personally. Oh, really? 
child loses mother because father murdered her, or I'm inconvenienced by being in prison. So that (laughs) idea, that pain competition, that idea of pain competition, which is actually in some ways a form of gaslighting, it just shows the absolute absence of any kind of not only empathy, but the absolute egocentricity. It's my pain. Yeah, sure, you might be going through something too, but oh my gosh, my pain is worse. Then he talks about the logic I am utilizing with you, that almost robotic, unemotional, that approach is something that's more consistent with something we'd see in sort of a psychopathic presentation. Then he says, I know I was not a bad father. I did right by you. That speaks to that delusional grandiosity. Like, whatever the opposite of the good father is, this is the polar flip to that. You know, that the fact that he just paid the mortgage and kept the heat on does not a good father qualify, but that this is sort of the delusional narrative that he maintains for himself. He actually was a good father. The denial, a crime I didn't commit. The blame shifting. My lawyers didn't mount up a defense. No mention of the fact that this woman was that your mother, that his wife, was encased in concrete under his house. No, no, this was all his lawyers mishandled the justice. That self-victimization. There was no evidence against me, which is, again, just absolutely almost bordering on delusional. Talking about political advancement and money, so that sense of there's something almost conspiratorial that you'll sometimes see in that sort of delusional grandiosity. You see, Yeah, that it's there. also like whataboutism. That's a new sort of... It's this sort of low-grade paranoia we see in this kind of personality. Then it's even this sort of, again, more of this delusional, almost conspiratorial stuff. We don't even know it's mommy. This idea that, no, I think that they pretty well established that on multiple fronts. Talks about system of government. And then he goes on to talk about the small minds of Mansfield. That idea of contempt is a major theme. Like, oh, these small town fools or these people don't know better. That contempt, it's a way of maintaining the dominance. That That's very much sort of that narcissistic, psychopathic quality. I found the part, though, when he brought it to money, Mm -hmm. bringing it to money, you're going to get an inheritance, people are going to know that. What that spoke to me more of was not him trying to take care of you. It spoke to me of the salience characteristic of money. And what do I mean by that is I actually think that for him, money was a real measure of a human being to him. 100%. Him having it, the power it would accord him, buy the new house. And he was critical of your mother's spending. Oh, she shops and this and that, the throwing of the, assumed throwing of the credit cards. Bringing the money in like that, it shows to me how top of mind it is. Sure. Because when you see people with these personality styles, when they're going into divorces, the idea of just cutting the check of what is rightfully that other person's is unbearable to them. And so this is where we'll see that escalation to violence and even murder. We hear about these cases every day. And then... The way he puts the situation, I wanted you with your Uncle Charlie, but I have no compunctions about the Zigglers. (laughs) These are the people who have adopted your son, the clinical, detached, distanced language, and all of this in this meandering polemic with absolutely no focus on how are you doing? Are you okay? That, I mean, to me, it's like a, a psychopath's manifesto, and you've got 400 of these. Yeah, and it's interesting. So what was happening at this time 
is that he was seeking an appeal mm. based upon the fact that there was new evidence and that my mother, he was trying to get my mother's body exhumed. And there was all this, there was an investigative journalism article that was out in the Akron Beacon Journal, which is a very good investigative mm -hmm. journalistic publication, at least back in that time it was. And this writer had discovered some things. There were discrepancies in the autopsy. My mother's eyes being brown. She had blue eyes, just like mine. Uh, her weight was off. Her height was off. There were different things that were that. So I actually, and this also put me at odds with my mother's family, but like it didn't really matter at that point. But because all these things were brought up by other people, I agreed the exhumation of my mother's body and give a DNA test because it was also even brought up and skeptical. People were skeptical of the fact that my mother was even my mother in the first place. There was all these other things that were undertoned. And my father at this time, and I actually got a copy of this from a relative of mine recently, my father was sending these newsletters out to prominent people in the Mansfield area called the Dr. John F. Boyle newsletter. Okay. I literally got it last grandiose. night. And bringing up all these questions about the police, the judge, all these other motives, basically gaslighting the hell out of an entire population and putting his education on there. And all. I mean, it's insane. So I agreed to have the body exhumed. It was exhumed. They took the DNA from my mother's sister. She also gave DNA and it was, of course, my mother. But... Yeah, at the time, and one of the things is my father had done a series of radio show interviews from prison <laughs> and on this very, very right-wing religious conspiracy theory radio show. And so I played that tape before in one of my episodes of my father just, it's, it's, it is staggering because it's on because there's because he's talking to people that are enabling him, right? So there he's no holds barred. The psychopathy is on full display, even more so than in the film. I mean, by far and away. And that was the environment, the climate of what was happening at this particular moment in time. Okay. So there is a series of letters, and I had accidentally opened one of these, or not accidentally, I was opening it because I was reading mm -hmm. it live. And then I found the tape, and mm -hmm. he teased it up slowly. He'll drop these subtle hints of like, uh, you know, there's going to be things that come out about mommy that you might not know. I just want you to be prepared mm -hmm. for those things. Like, that's in another letter, right? He's planting these seeds of manipulation and disinformation, and it's so calculated. But it's staggering because when I read these, I'm just like, Oh my God, mm -hmm. like this is just, mm -hmm. it's, it, he's playing chess. Mm -hmm. It's not checkers, this mm -hmm. is chess. chess. Well, again, like I said, even get away from terms like psychopathy, narcissism, sociopathy. We can even use more of a theoretical look at it, something we've talked about in this podcast before called the dark tetrad. And the yeah. dark tetrad is an extension of the dark triad, which takes in psychopathy, Machiavellianism, narcissism, and sadism. And those things hang together. Okay. I would actually, if I ran the world, I would call it the dark quintad or what's five sides, pentagon, the dark pentagon. <laughs> and I would add paranoia to that because there's this always this constant sense of threat and there's this, this hyper reactivity to any perceived sense of threat, shutting it down, defaming it, all of that. So both of what you experienced, Tara, you and John and you and your father are very much dark tetrad presentations. And I like it better theoretically because it gets away from that, oh, this is a psychopath, to a much more elegant formulation of how all these things like psychopathy, narcissism, Machiavellianism, or the willingness 
willingness to exploit other people and sadism or the actual kind of the kind of high a person gets off on from menacing or harming another person. That's what this is. And there is no one word. So the theorists who triad became tetrad, like I said, will turn it into the Pentagon today. My session with Tara and Collier will continue after this break. Something that you got into in your TED Talk that was very much a big theme in your film, and then something that also came up in what we've been talking about here in in terms of the ongoing contact with your father and the prison visits is the wanting an answer. He's been convicted of a crime, right? So this is no longer the sense of he's dropping a dime on himself. He has been convicted. He is in prison, right? In prison. (laughs) This is not the time to be coy. He wanted an opportunity to tell his story, but as we see, well, he does tell the story. He just— Because what you have been wanting, what you've been wanting is what every survivor wants. Yes. Which is the why. A jury of your peers, an investigation, all of it has shown you killed her. And you simply want to know why. And it will not bring her back. It will not address your grief. But there's a decent shot it could help you feel a little bit more whole, to have a little bit of the fabric of the universe make a little bit more sense. That is a small ask for any child to make to their parent. You've been making this ask for 30 years. You still didn't get your answer. And Collier, I feel pretty confident you never will. Yeah, but I did get my answer. Hmm. And as I said in the end, when I said to him, when I said, I believe that you believe that. Yeah. And that is my answer. Hmm. Because that is the moment that I realized yeah. that this is a, like the person that is sitting in, there. there's a human being, there's a body, mm-hmm. it's breathing, It's it, it has life, it, it talks, it drinks water, it does these things, but it's not, it doesn't have the qualities of a human being. Mm-hmm. It has the physical aspects of Mm -hmm. it, but it doesn't have the qualities of a real human being. That's what terrified me is that Mm -hmm. I literally just, you're looking at someone that is a shell of a human being. And it's hard to explain unless you've been there and Mm -hmm. you've seen that. But you're looking at what I would pretty much say is the purest form of evil Hmm. because you're looking at something that has no soul. Mm -hmm. And if you have no soul, what allows you to function on a human level of existence? Well, even like something that you said earlier about how when you looked at his eyes, there was like darkness. And I was like, oh, hey, that's how I felt when I looked at John. Like there was so much darkness and there wasn't a human in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're like shark's eyes or doll's eyes. Yeah. They end where the plastic ends yeah. kind of thing, or just you can't look deep into them. I hear completely what you're saying is that there's an utter darkness. But ultimately, then your why was never to, it was never the why did you do this thing, but it was the, it was almost a what. That's what got answered is this is something that operates, that exists in a way that is not my conception of a human being. That was what the closure looked like. And I think that that's what's important for people to recognize is that it's not always that you get the why. Instead, maybe you understand more of a what. And that's an audible click when you finally do get it. And it may not be as at the level as I'm in the presence of evil. And one thing I always bring people back to is that the most difficult thing about, again, these dark tetrad kinds of relationships when you're dealing with people like this is, 
you're almost never going to get a why. You could get a forensic psychologist in there to opine on what the why (laughs) could be. But people with these personality styles are completely cut off from their why, from why they do what they do. Or it would require a connection to those deeper parts of themselves that they're absolutely not there. Because if they could connect to that, then you might see things like empathy and compassion, which you don't see. But then it's more of a, is anyone really going to answer the question of, I'm a pathetic little human being that wanted life to turn out the way, exactly the way he needed it to, and something got in the way, and how dare somebody tell me no? And nobody tells me no because I had a plan and F you for getting in the way of my plan and F you to all of you for holding me accountable because really, if I was to speculate, that's his why. 100%. And he was never going to come to that. And here's what's fascinating is here's this incredibly grandiose man. And you gave him this platform. Here's your moment. You can actually deliver your testimony right here in a film. Have your moment. Look all that. Might even help you with parole. But he had gotten so embedded in this delusionally grandiose narrative, couldn't be budged out of it. And in a way, your story could free a lot of survivors when people say, how do they not get it? And I'm like, because they don't get it and they never will. And if somebody couldn't get it when the stakes were this high. When the they ain't going to get high. it. Yeah. <laughs> Profound conversation. I was like, on that note. <laughs> How do you, I mean, for both of you, and this is to both of you, because as you said, this is not a finish line. This is not a destination. This is an eternal journey and process. How do you continue your healing journey? What propels you? What has propelled you? And for both of you, there's been quite a moment. For you, it was the fighting for your own survival and coming out of that trauma on the top of other traumas you had lived, Tara. In your case, Collier, it was finally bringing this story to light on your terms, telling your story on your terms. But that was no finish line for either of you. You've been working on your healing ever since. What's that process been like for you? Well, I want to say that it's forever ongoing. Mm -hmm. I don't think that there will be a day where I'm like, oh, nothing triggers me. You know, I think that it's a forever step. Like yesterday I was triggered because this guy literally bumped into me with his body at Whole Foods, didn't see me. It happened on the side where John grabbed me. Mm. And I think that before in the past, if that would have happened, I would have probably went and socked that guy in the face. (laughs) Where now I did EMDR and done so much healing, but it took me a minute for me to process what just happened realize I'm actually safe, even though that just happened. And I don't have to react to that right now. Mm -hmm. So taking happiness in those little moments, like I reversed back to homeostasis by a couple hours later. Mm -hmm. And so thank you. And it like took self-care, but it took time for me to stay in that space and then reverse it. And then now today I could talk about my trauma. I'm not going to be so triggered by the end of this. And also it helps talking about what I did to heal, where we do coaching now. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then it's important for me to do this podcast, too, because how we talked about how these people, these certain types of people, they thrive off of that attention and the grandiosity. 
and how it's so important not to give them stories or a platform or anything and how it's so important to have other survivors on our podcast where they're able to talk about their experiences rather than listening to someone that's going to get a high off of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're absolutely right. And I think yeah. most of our platforms do focus on totally spending all our time on deconstructing the mind of the perpetrator yeah. and all of that with far less attention to the survivor. What about for you, Collier? What has propelled you as you continue your journey of healing, not just since you were 11 years old, but since you were a child and certainly, though, since making this film and seeing your father six years ago? I set out to heal myself impact that one kid's life Mm -hmm, that was mm -hmm. in my position and most importantly honor my mother Mm -hmm. and her story and put some finality to that what i did not expect is the amount of people who i have been able to reach Mm. not only initially from the film but then with the podcast Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and now with our survivor squad podcast which is coming out soon is the amount of people that gravitate towards my story tara's story but me particularly, how much hope and how much strength they garner from hearing yeah. my story mm-hmm. and how it impacts them. And and these recrees, whether it's, you know, dramatization, whether it's, you know, shows even like Dirty John was turned into a television series, other, you know, other sorts of big crimes. And, and this has been happening for a long time, but it's really gotten concentrated lately. It's a, it's a sociological comment about society as a whole as to why we are drawn to true crime. I have a few thoughts about it. I do say, I do think that sometimes when we watch a true crime story that ends up in a just place, and by that I mean the perpetrator is found guilty, a person like John who is violent and dangerous is actually put down. I remember so well, I can be in that moment when I read the story in the LA Times and I was literally, I was reading it and I was clenching the device because I'm thinking, oh my God, this guy's going to kill someone. And when in the story he dies, I literally felt a palpable physical sense of relief, right? And I think that when these true crime stories end up where people want them to, there is that sense of justice where so many people don't have that in their lives, least of all in their narcissistic relationships. So for a minute, the world feels right. The problem is, is that like you said it very well, there is a blast zone around these stories. This isn't just the son of the mother who died. These are the friends, the community, the fabric of safety around these stories is punctured and in a way that people never feel safe again. So talk to me now about how you're going to approach this idea of ethical true crime because this is a real dicey area. And so I'd be really curious as you as survivors, what your thoughts are about that and how you're going to approach that. Well, I think, first of all, as someone who made a film not in the true crime genre, it's, you know, it's it's just a film about humanity, right? Plea for humanity. Like when I became aware of Tara's story and I saw how these true crime shows whether it be a podcast, whether it be a you know a, a, a news show, whether it be a, a, a syndicated series like Dirty John, how that much they profit off of this and how exploitative it ends up being, you know that was where it really heightened my awareness. But what we became both really impassioned was is allowing the space where the survivor's story is the story, mm-hmm. not 
the what happened, the perpetrators stuff. It's they want to know the story. But then the important thing to keep in mind and what the real story is, is not about what happened to the crime, is how the people live yeah. through it and move on with their lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also allow a space where people can share those stories on their own terms. And if they don't want to, that's fine. Right. We're not there to share it for yeah. them. Yeah. Well, I just want to say for everyone, I feel that ethical true crime is a little different. And it's asking that one person that we're having on for that episode, what does that mean for them? Mm-hmm. How can we tell your story in a better light? What are the words that you want us to use to talk about your trauma? Because certain words trigger certain people. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's asking that person, how can we make your story be told in the best light possible. Yeah, totally makes sense. Again, the two of you are, through a journey of tremendous pain, are in a position to actually really enact some real change. It's things like meaning, purpose, and love, which when we can derive those from our experiences in our life and find that way to pay it forward to others, that that is the humanity in the struggle. So again, I am privileged, humbled beyond belief to have spent this time with both of you, to have heard heard your stories, and again, that they will inspire survivors to know that, you know, the sun will rise again. And in fact, you might be in a better position to actually notice it in a very different way. Nobody ever wants pain to descend into their lives, but once it happens, we have in us this incredibly human capacity to grow past it, in spite of it, and even more because of it. So thank you. Thank you again. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We appreciate it. Power of the human spirit. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. These are my takeaways from my conversation with Collier. One of the most profound elements of Collier's story was his search for a why. As a child, then as an adolescent and an adult, like everyone who has been in one of these toxic relationships, Collier wanted to hear from his father, the why. This may be one of the most frustrating aspects of the journey of healing from toxic, narcissistic, and antagonistic relationships. Collier found his version of a why by finally having to accept who his father is. But for many survivors, this is a real stumbling block to healing. Radical acceptance means that sometimes we don't get a why. Because people with these kinds of personalities are simply too detached from their own motivations. They do what works for them in the moment with little regard for how it affects others. Grieving without a why can be difficult, but it is a major part of the healing process. In my next takeaway, for many, maybe not all, but many people who have survived stories of trauma and abuse and emotionally, psychologically, and toxically abusive relationships, after they address their initial healing and processing of what happened to them, paying it forward in some way is often part of their process. Whether that is becoming trained as a therapist, doing coaching, volunteering with survivors, creating content, books, anything to put their story out there. The more stories that come into the light, the more it may lift shame for survivors who believe that they are alone in these stories. However, a piece of caution here. Ensure that you do the work you need to do first, whether that's trauma therapy, 
therapy focused on legacy issues, developing and shoring up your own coping and resilience. It can be tempting to want to jump right in and help others with your story. But first, you need to take care of you. This often makes more sense if we think of it as a physical illness or injury, that you would need to heal from a broken bone or finish a course of treatment for an illness before you volunteer with others. And it's exactly the same with the unseen bruises and injuries of trauma and emotional abuse. You need to heal first. Tara and Collier found each other, both having lived through unique and very public stories. And the nature of their stories could have left them feeling quite isolated, feeling that new people they meet would not understand what they had experienced. Isolation, feeling like people won't understand you, and even shame can impact many survivors of severe toxic situations, even if they are not public. They found each other and have benefited. And while you may not meet someone who went through exactly what you did, exploring options such as support groups or group therapy can be quite useful. Being in a room with someone who has walked a similar journey to yours can be extraordinarily healing. A big thank you to our executive producers, Jada Pinkett-Smith, Fallon Jethro, Ellen Rakuten, and Dr. Romani Devasala. And thank you to our producer, Matthew Jones, associate producer, Mara Della Rosa, and consultant, Kelly Ebeling. And finally, thank you to our editors and sound engineers, Devin Donahue and Calvin Bailiff. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. 
from Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.